Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here is Stuart Alsop, uh, my father. Uh, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Well, now you know I'm Stuart's father, uh, plus uh, I have a 45-year career as, first as a journalist and then as a venture capitalist, and I'm now a partner uh, with Gilman Louie and Alsop Louie Partners, a uh, boutique venture capital firm. Mm, nice. And what are the different stresses uh, that are associated with journalism as opposed to venture capital? Well, they're distinctly different businesses, and uh, pe most people don't understand. Why should they? Um, in journalism, your job is to deliver wisdom, news, insight to your readers, um, and to do it before anybody else does it. So the pressure and the stress is, how do you find out stuff? How do you report it to your uh, audience, and uh, and uh, how accurate is it? Um, when I switched careers <coughs> from uh, being a journalist to being a venture capitalist, I used to tell people, well, I still still tell people that uh, I went from being paid not to make money, because in journalism you're not supposed to profit from your information, and uh, to being paid to make massive amounts of money. Uh, because in venture capital, it's a high-risk investment um, thesis, and you're supposed to deliver higher-than-average returns to your investors, and you get compared to every other venture capitalist. So the stress is figuring out, you know, is this company you're investing in going to pay out enough to actually make you a good venture capitalist so you can continue to raise money? Mm. Very different stresses. Mm -hmm. And the venture capital seems like a long-term stress, like a long-term kind of like legacy type of stress. Um, Journalism is defined entirely by its periodic cycle. Uh, if you're working for a daily newspaper, which is not that many people doing that anymore, but uh, or for a uh, news blog or news service, um, your cycle is measured in seconds, really, uh, maybe minutes, maybe hours. Um, whereas in venture capital, we make a decision to invest, and you might make money within two or three years, that would be the odd uh, situation. It's great when that happens, uh, but generally speaking, you're committed and involved in that particular company for six to 10 years, <coughs> and, uh, uh, and in a fund that accumulates and overlaps with each fund that you have. So whenever you start, whenever you decide to stop, there's still another five to seven years. You've got to keep going in order to uh, deliver the returns. Mm. And I remember when I was a kid, you used to always talk about how deadlines in journalism uh, gave you a lot of stress, but at the same time, you said that you wouldn't be able to do things without those deadlines, too. Yeah, it's my peculiar, it's not that peculiar because I know a lot of other people, but it's my peculiar <coughs> mentality that I really can't get started on something until the deadline looms, mm. usually within the next 24 hours, potentially overnight. Um, and I train myself to deal with that 
in journalism, so I was very good at it. I could write fast and accurately, and and uh, and I have a hyper editor in my head that keeps me on track, and uh, so that was very beneficial for journalism because the short cycles and uh, you'd uh, commit, go into the publication, and it was done. Move on to the next thing. Mm. Um, metric Apple is not so much. Um, you have to anticipate issues that will happen well in the future uh, and try to protect yourself against them when you're making the initial investment. Um, and we've been continually surprised by issues that we just didn't anticipate uh -huh. years later. What was the biggest one? Uh, the, uh, the biggest one is when we find out that one of our entrepreneurs is either legally or intellectually dishonest and uh, lies to us. That's a very, very difficult situation to deal with. And so what is the role of honesty in business? Well, it's my attitude and has, paid, has served me well um, that trust is the core issue in business, that your ability to develop trust with your customers, your audience, your community, your colleagues is so powerful that it really makes the difference between success and failure. Um, so people that don't have that attitude, uh, I think, are people that are committed to long-term failure. And uh, so Gilman, my partner, and I developed a whole ethos around how we deal with people, which is to be extremely direct, um, to be consistent, um, and, uh, and to always favor the humanity in the situation. And how did you guys come up with that philosophy? What was the, what was the kind of guiding principle, or or what were the things you learned? Was there a point at which you realized that long-term honesty were the ways to go, or honesty is the way to go for long-term success? Well, I think that's always been true for both of us, uh, independent of when we started working together. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have to learn what it means. Um, in my case, and Gilman has helped me a lot with this. Um, of a tendency to be hyper honest, which sometimes backfires on you. And uh, so I've gotten in trouble with several of my investments because the entrepreneur felt that I was being too aggressive. And uh, <clears throat> well, I thought it was just being clear and predictive. They thought I was out to get them. And uh, the uh, Gilman's much better at managing that and has taught me a lot about how to moderate my um, natural aggressive tendencies, including in terms of being honest. Um, and uh, uh, so, I mean, that's a, you can't really answer that question in a global way. It really is specific to each individual. It just turned out with Gilman and me that we have a very similar point of view about how we deal with people. Uh, and in terms of uh, partnerships and you and, and Gilman and Louie, what are the biggest sources of stress when it comes to uh, building a company with someone else? Well, I would refer that, refer back to my experience at my prior firm. <clears throat> not to call anybody out, which is a much bigger firm, you know, ultimately has been investing multi-billion dollar funds after I left um, and has a long history before that. And um, I really felt that there was not a sort of fundamental trust between the partners um, where we really could rely on each other to do the right thing. And that was a great learning experience. And I even made some money, but it was not a happy experience. Uh, whereas Gilman and I, we really haven't had to actually do anything because we are so naturally aligned in terms of how we deal with business and what our objectives are. 
I mean, I can tell you everything that's wrong with Gilman, and he can probably tell you everything that's wrong with me. Um, but uh, those are things on the edge. And so we actually use this as part of our uh, firm management principles, which is we really don't engage with somebody new as a partner unless one of us. We started out with thinking that both of us should have known that individual for at least 10 years. But we realized that filter was so strong, there were only like six people that we both knew for 10 years or more. So we've had to lighten up that at least one of us knows that individual and is willing to rely on our previous experience with them. Uh, and it, and it's, it's tough because, you know, we have a limited network, even though both of us are extraordinarily well networked, we have a limited network to draw from. And uh, when we invest in a company, of course, we can't depend on that sort of relationship. That's really only on our partner relationships. So, you know, we've, we've learned that that trust, um, that innate trust and belief in each other is really critical to having a partnership. Uh, and you can't fake trust. There's no way to fake trust. It's something that is there or is not. Well, you can fake it temporarily, uh, but, but eventually it will out. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, and what is the connection between trust and warmth? So I think a lot of people mistake when they, when they like someone, they also mistake trusting them as well. Is there a connection between those two things? It's hard to trust somebody you don't like. And it's easy to like somebody you don't trust. <laughs> I think that I've just made that up, so I don't know. If it's a, I haven't really tested that thesis, but um, <clears throat> the uh, but I, I've, had, I've had that experience of you know enjoying being around somebody but still not trusting them. The uh, but but uh, you you use the word warmth and. Uh, you know, I'd have to say that you'd be more inclined to trust people that are kind or nice or warm, uh, friendly. But there are a lot of people out there that are introverts that have, you know, terrible bedside manner, but are sort of fundamentally trustable people that you can rely on. And we have, we have a number of those in our network. Um, they tend to be in particular professions where they're taught to think much more irrationally than they are in terms of emotional quotient. What are the biggest sources of stress that you've faced uh, just in uh, in your own life, whether it's business or life? Uh, well, a lot of those are a product of my emotional and psychological issues. <laughs> Growing up issues, if you will. So, if I was to kind of generalize, I'd have to say the biggest source of stress in my life was my lack of confidence in myself, and uh, which I attribute to a lack of parental involvement. That's a very polite way of putting it. But my parents were not assholes um, in a sort of strict sense, which I've observed in other families, but they were not particularly attentive or supportive. Um, they were much more focused on themselves than on me, and being in a large family where I'm number four out of six, I kind of got lost in the shuffle, and uh, so I had to supply my own confidence and belief in myself, and I did not end up with a high level of that, at least when I was a kid. Mm. So that would be the far and Actually, I'll tell an anecdote. Um, I was in psychotherapy for 15 years, and uh, I'd say probably five years into it, and I really love and admire my psychotherapist. He contributed a lot to my improved self-awareness and uh, self-confidence. Um, but we were talking about stress and uh, and uh, anxiety, which are 
related but not the same thing. And I, I had, this is in my sort of early 40s, I guess, so I spent 20 years working with the fundamental thesis in my head that anxiety is what made me successful, that it led me to overperform uh, against my expectations because I was so anxious about doing that. And, uh, and so I developed this thesis for <laughs> actually in the middle of me telling him, burst out laughing. And, uh, and I was going, oh, this is really weird. My own shrink is sitting here laughing at me while I'm telling him a really serious issue. And, uh, and uh, he proceeded to explain why he laughed and, and uh, led me down a path where I began to understand that anxiety is a symptom, not a cause. And uh, it's a symptom of something else. And so, and then actually he ultimately taught me that anxiety is a symptom of itself and uh, is actually the problem. So the degree to which you feel anxiety is the degree to which you're letting something get you between you and what's going on. And it's not the thing that's going on, it's a thing to the side, and so you're getting distracted. So if you give a public presentation and you're anxious and you worry about how well you're gonna do, you're focused on how well you're gonna do rather than performing for the audience. Mm. That was a huge realization for me, and in all aspects of my life, I ended up having to realize that when I started to feel anxiety, <clears throat> um, I had to focus on the anxiety, figure out why I was feeling anxious, and manipulate it and get it out of the way so that I could perform more naturally. Mm -hmm. But he was burst out laughing because he, he basically <laughs> said, well, that's, that's just the wrong way to think about it. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> and what, were, what has changed since that point? Have you noticed a change in yourself about how you deal with anxiety? Oh, yeah. I still have anxiety. And I still have actually all the same anxieties, as I mentioned, getting up in public or... Flying airplanes used to be a horrible thing because I would ended up in a job where I'd get on airplanes and go give speeches. Uh -huh. It'd be in constant state of anxiety. Uh -huh. um, you know, I can relax on airplanes now and I, I can let it go and uh, learn how to manage myself into public speaking engagements where I'm actually enjoying myself mm -hmm. instead of doing things out of obligation. I do it for entertainment and, and uh, forward movement uh. and. Uh, so as long as I can make it conscious in my head that I'm feeling a state of anxiety and then identify why I'm having it, I can moderate it and, and deal with it. And so you, you recently come, had, had, an, had an illness, um, and, and what has that illness taught you about the important things in life? Well, there's an accumulation of things, actually. I'm way more calm. Uh -huh. Part of the reason I'm way more calm is I finally made a little bit of money. Uh -huh. Um, so I'm not, I can't like even persuade myself that I'm stressed about, you know, being homeless or not having enough money. Um, I don't think that'll happen in the rest of what I've got available. Um, so I'm not as anxious about that. And then as you say, I faced this life-threatening disease where I had a doctor look me in the eye and say, <clears throat> there's a chance that you'll die. And we rate your odds at about 50 to 70% of survival. Mm -hmm. And you sit there and you go, whew, that means there's like a 50 to 30% chance I'll expire. And that's, that's a really interesting thing. And as you know, my father and your grandfather died of complications from leukemia. Of course, that's my diagnosis as well. And uh, um, he was given a certain uh, date by which he would die, and he talked quite a lot about being given that, and then he wrote a book called State of Execution because he didn't actually die within that period of time. He died within uh, three years. But, um, and uh, 
So in my case, I've beaten the disease, so I faced that question. And now I'm anticipating living a normal life, so I'm, but I have that in my head. Uh, I've had a doctor tell me that I had a life-threatening disease and I had the potential for dying earlier than I'm supposed to, whatever that means. Um, and, uh, and I had to become comfortable with that idea that you know I might end up in a hospital or whatever, I might end up in a situation where I would expire early. <clears throat> and uh, so I, I actually got comfortable with that. Uh, said to myself, you know, let's let's not let's not screw, screw the rest of the time you have by worrying about it too much. And then, but then, in the it's like I noticed after a few months of that, you stopped doing certain activities, like to going into a lot of meetings and stuff, or not meetings, but yeah. So what did you what did that teach you about about life and like what are the important activities? Well, that's why I mentioned making a little money because it's uh-huh. like okay, I'm in a situation now where I've kind of made it. I'm not going to like at the age of 66. I'm not going to change the outcome tremendously. I'm not going to be a famous multi-billionaire uh, venture capitalist. Uh-huh. I'm comfortable, no complaints. Uh-huh. But I'm not going to be a Mike Moritz or a John Doerr or uh-huh. you know uh, one of these guys who has repeatedly invested in companies that have produced for them personally multi-billion-dollar wealth. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm a lot more calm about my status <laughs> as a business professional. Have stopped going to most industry events. Uh-huh. Discovered I really don't like hanging out with other venture capitalists, uh-huh. um, normal venture capitalists, uh-huh. I like exceptional ones. Uh-huh. And I and I uh-huh. haven't really found any companies to invest in by going to public meetings where there's tens or even hundreds of other VCs looking at exactly the same deals. It's not the way I develop companies of interest, and uh, so. There's really no value for me to try to impress other people with how many meetings I go to or how visible I am mm. in the industry. And uh, along with multiple other factors in my life, being remarried, uh, having the money to spend, um, figuring out what I really do enjoy doing, uh-huh. um, I've kind of narrowed my set of activities to the things that I just like have a lot of fun doing. And what are those? <laughs> well, everybody around me knows I like going fishing. Uh-huh. Um, it's difficult because for a year I wasn't allowed to travel, much less go to places where fish like to be. Mm, which um, is not near human civilization, which is where you needed to be, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I needed to be near a major hospital with an emergency room if I could travel. But for a long time I wasn't allowed to travel at all. Um, and uh, so the definition of my travel restrictions has become looser and looser, and I'm beginning to step outside them, The uh, which still makes me nervous. But the... Uh, so it's fishing. Fishing is my primary activity outside of work and family and so forth. And uh, it's where I go to chill and uh, get away from life. And although I never really completely get away from it. As a VC, you're always on uh, call. And uh, so I've, uh, but I, so along with my business life, I'm not um, spending a lot of time promoting our firm or, you know, getting out there and trying to develop deal flow or, um, uh, I love going to things that educate me mm-hmm. where I learn about new technologies. I love hanging out with really smart entrepreneurs and, and a, a few VCs who seem to think differently than yeah. the crowd. Yeah. Um, but I do that on the exceptional basis now. So what does fishing do for you to relieve stress? Why do, why, why fishing? What, what about that experience? Well, it's a really interesting psychology. And it took me a long time to learn this. 
along with everything else I've talked about that I've learned, but uh, in order to be successful in fishing, you have to stop trying hard. The harder you try, the less successful you'll be. Um, first of all, the fish don't really care. Uh, <laughs> you have to create a situation in which they want to take your fly. Um, and uh, that means you have to be part of the natural environment. You have mm -hmm. to accept the environment and become part of it. And uh, the degree to which you try harder, you make way more mistakes in terms of how you cast or place the fly or present to the fish or even figure out where the fish are or you know, what, to, what to serve them up. And uh, so it becomes a zen-like experience where you're really trying to release yourself from your anxiety and at the same time be technically precise in terms of using the equipment and, and dealing with the fish. And uh, when you achieve that, there's an incredible sense of satisfaction uh, from doing it. Um, and uh, so it's, it is, you know, I've tried meditation and I've tried yoga and I've tried Pilates and various other physical activities, but nothing ever comes close to what happens on the river. Well, it's interesting because what you just described is a, is a, is a description of meditation once you've do you you let yeah let go of the ego and start to kind of be you become union um become one with your surroundings that's that is a, a sense of meditation when you when you drop drop the mind and all its striving and action and everything like that and you just kind of become what you are right now what's going on right now that is a form of meditation um and it's not formal meditation but it is meditation yeah mm -hmm. yeah i kind of knew that when i was trying to meditate you know, sit on the floor in my bedroom and try to release myself, but I'm sitting there in the middle of my house. And <laughs> the hardest place in the world to let go of everything. Whereas doing it in the river, particularly like I do, where I travel to different rivers all the time, um, and realizing that the more I was stressed about whether I'd fall in or, you know, cast correctly or stuff like that, the less I would be successful in fishing. I was like... Well, the only way I'm going to do this well is to let go of all those anxieties. Wow, that feels good. So I want to switch from stress to creativity. What is your definition of creativity? Either in a business sense or, I mean, you have a lot of art. We're sitting in, in your house right now and you've got tons of art around you. So you are at least a admirer of art and creativity. Yeah, and that's, a, that's an expensive habit. but So it's, it's really fun to do when you have too much money and you don't really care about the money. The, uh, so I think a lot about this actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm also, as you know, on the board of Meow Wolf where we're trying to trap wild creativity in a corporate organization. And it's uh, really fascinating to see how that works because the more you try to trap it, the less likely it will respond <laughs> in a happy way. Um, and, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that I'm so attracted to Meowulf as, as an investment. Because um, I got to kind of exercise all the thoughts that I've had about this over the last 40 plus years. Wow. Plus I used to uh, do woodworking myself in the shop and, and uh, it's part of what I ended up buying. And as you observe, we're sitting here with a bunch of art. We're also sitting here with a bunch of handmade furniture. Wow. It's the craftsmanship that I re really appeals to me, the ability to translate what you have in your head into something in physical form or even uh, other forms um, through your hands and your skill set. Mm. And uh, so to take a, a thought and translate it using skill 
to something that expresses what you're trying to communicate. That's, I think, probably the essence of the creative um, act. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> um, and you can be equally creative in business as you can in art or craft. Um, I mean, creativity is part of everything we do. Uh-huh. And, uh, so I think of creativity as an incredibly important and fundamental element of the human experience. Um, and to some degree, referring back to Meow Wolf, what Meow Wolf has stumbled into and is trying to formalize and make money off of is that here we are in a world where we depend less and less on our physical abilities and more and more on our intellectual abilities that, uh, that we've really moved into. Uh, well, there's a couple of professors at Harvard that have named it the experience economy, but the, we've moved into a new stage of economic activity in the world where people profit more from their ability to create an experience or to experience an experience than they do from their you know, physical hands or from agriculture or from technology or you know, any of the previous. And how is that related to the evolution of the internet? Because it seems like the internet has enabled that. Actually, well, it has to some degree. I mean, uh, not directly though. Mm-hmm. It's not that the internet makes you more creative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that the internet has loosened all the constraints <clears throat> and constraints is a really interesting thing to discuss when it comes to creativity, and I'll talk about it a little bit more. But, it, but basically, because the internet has made it possible to do many things we couldn't physically do before, you know, like look up places on your phone and and uh, carry your phone with you, carry your computer with you in your pocket, and, and uh, you know, blah blah blah, all the stuff that people talk about. Um, <clears throat> it's created a situation where it's a lot easier to be creative. You're making a podcast here. Well, a former form of that was a radio book broadcast, and you had to have a license and a radio. Not many people did it. Yeah. Um, now anybody can do it. It was quite expensive as well, whereas the, the, the cost of each episode for me is negligible. Negligible. Yeah. And, so, and, uh, but that doesn't mean that you're good at it yeah. or anybody else is good at it. The definition of, sort of the, the value of the creative effort is still constrained by the value it has to the audience or whatever. Um, and it's actually something we haven't fully adjusted to, but that's the condition under which I think Meow Wolf has, has begun to explore. And, you know, a fundamental tenet for Meow Wolf is that they've created a business model where artists can get paid for their work. Mm. <clears throat> it's no longer this whole um, sort of sponsorship model where they had to go find a rich person to, mm. to make it possible. Um, that's stri- strictly kind of creative art, if you will. But we have the same issues with all other forms of creativity, whether it's a podcast or a newsletter or... Um, movies or you know any other form of expression mm-hmm. so I think the internet has created a situation structural situation in which uh, we're now exploring exploring the boundaries of creativity much differently than we did in the past mm-hmm. and part of what worries me about that is that art has tended to flourish under constraint mm-hmm. and uh, I mentioned that word earlier but the, um, you know if you think of the painters who had to live in a garret because they didn't have enough money to survive and and yet they produced this amazing work on their own with no encouragement mm-hmm. it was the constraints that they lived under mm-hmm. to some degree that um, led to their incredible accomplishments <clears throat> and that's true in music and many other fields of endeavor and it's a, a, a sense of stress or suffering as well most artists are incredibly have a lot of suffering i would say too as well and then they they art is the way that they translate that that's a popular point of view. I'm, I'm not sure it's necessarily true. Uh-huh. I mean, 
again, Mialf is testing that assumption by saying that artists can have a salary, uh, regular income, and uh-huh. corporate benefits and yeah. stuff like that. We'll find out whether that actually works. But uh-huh. the uh, uh, but but the, my preferred definition of constraint is that, that if I say to you, be creative, uh-huh. we don't give you any parameters. Yeah. Not you, you personally, but you, the person I'm talking to, it's going to sit there and go, well, what the heck do I do? Mm. You know, where, where do I start? Mm. But if I say to you, uh, go gather up sticks around the property and build a little house. Oh, well, then you, you know what you're trying to do, and, but you have a set of constraints. You're doing it on this property in this season. You know, the sticks suck and, you know, they'll probably break or whatever, but there's constraints around it. And so the tighter you set the constraints, the degree to which you can respond more in a creative way, that's the kind of constraint I'm thinking about. And I've always thought about it, um, like wood, wood, woodworking early on, you have to work with the properties of the wood. Some woods are softer than others. Some have more grain and some have less. And if you're going to build a piece, you have to be aware and knowledgeable about all that stuff in order to create a piece that's beautiful um, and to, to, to really have value over the long term as opposed to just being manufactured. And, uh, so the, ish, the uh, role of constraint and creativity, I think, is a, it's a, uh, what's the word for, you know, you go back and forth between them. Um, a senior moment that's really interesting um so what can you talk more about the creativity in business what is the most creative business you've come across in the last uh month i probably wouldn't respond to that question because it's hard to know if you come across a business to know within a month how creative it is i mean i i can't identify the one but i I was just introduced to a company that's trying to build, proposing to build a Mach 5 passenger airplane, uh-huh. autonomous. <laughs> so you could fly from New York to London in 90 minutes on an airplane without a pilot. Uh-huh. We were willing to do that, but I thought that was pretty creative. Uh-huh. Requires a lot of technical skill and knowledge to be able to pull that off, uh-huh. not to mention money. Yeah. Um, I don't know, is that creative? Um, the uh, and most create so the way I'd respond is to say that the most creative guy I ever encountered in my business career was Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. um, and there are plenty of other candidates. I mean, Elon Musk is like off the charts. When he, I mean, where the hell did he come up with the boring company, uh-huh. making tunnels uh-huh. underneath ground and doing it more efficiently than the people that do it now? I just. Where the hell did that come from? I can, I can give some insight into that. He, yeah. So he thinks as we start to face more climate change issues that the only sensible place to go is either to Mars or to underground. underground yeah, I know. He says those things, but still. Where did that idea come from? I mean, yeah. He's a guy from South Africa. I mean, where, how the hell did he end up being so creative that he like created a car, electric car company, created a spaceship company, created a tunneling company? I mean, he, he even came up with a not a flamethrower. Um, so I'm just saying he, he, he would appear to be creative, but the, the, this, the thing that Steve Jobs had, which I still don't think Elon Musk has, is the ability to think completely independently, mm. not reference anybody else. Mm. Um, so which led him to have the ability to have insights that no one else had, mm. um, and then to act on them. Of course, he had the resources to do that too, at least after he rescued Apple from ruin. And uh, so 
he was, he was able to think in a way, and that, that would be my definition of creativity, sort of ultimate creativity, is that you can exceed the boundaries that you have placed on yourself or that your environment is placed on you to come up with stuff that are that is genuinely new and or that goes completely against the grain and, and ends up being right, mm -hmm. um, which is a little bit of a line mosque as well. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of other people that, that do that. And, um, you know, right now we're, it's fascinating because we're watching Mark Zuckerberg really define whether he is one of those people or not or whether he just kind of had one insight and he's just been iterating on that in a massive way. It made a lot of money in the yeah. process, but still he's still, you know, his uh, choice to be defensive about Facebook's um, current activities indicates that, you know, that's what he's always done. Uh, Bill Gates always did that too, and mm -hmm. Gates always responded to things from the point of view of a programmer, and everything was about programming, and that's where he started. He wrote, you know, BASIC, and mm -hmm. then he, you know, used another operating system along with BASIC to create an operating system, and blah, 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 he kept going. The thing that always drove him um, was his point of view about programmers. Um, he's even kind of reprogramming the world with his wealth, and so it's, uh, you know, so people have these embedded things ability to exceed that and transcend your own limitations basically yeah. and Steve Jobs was able to do that he was able yeah to over time I mean he uh -huh. was pretty much an asshole when he was younger and burned a lot of people and but he learned yeah. over time and and uh, and anyway so that I mean you know maybe maybe I give too much to Steve Jobs but any because he's dead there's there's uh, nothing you can do about that but the, um, but that, I mean, you know, I look at the current iPhone and I, I, I can interpret it as well. If Steve Jobs is around, it would be a lot better than it is now, but mm. that's just me. <laughs> uh, opinion. So I really want to, I'm interested, because you've had a lot of experience with Steve Jobs, and I'm really interested in this kind of connection between what Steve Jobs did a lot of meditation, yoga, and stuff like that, and his ability to do that, and how connected they were. And do you have any insight into 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 his life and how he acted? I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but like, why was Steve Jobs the way he was? Yeah, well, I've read all the books, most of the books. There's one I won't read because it was written by somebody I don't like. Um, the uh, well, it's a complex question with a complex answer, and multiple people have tried to answer it through yeah. through books and articles. Um, has something to do with being adopted, mm. um, and even though his dad was like a great individual and you know supported him, he felt disconnected from the rest of the world, um, and uh, and uh, actually I think that's probably at the core of the whole thing. Mm. Um, and he didn't really talk about it himself; you can only observe that externally because um, he didn't share himself with too many people. Mm. Um, so he did go and seek a yogi and travel in India and sort of seek enlightenment and uh, experimented. In fact, that was why he died. Part of the reason he died when he did was he refused treatment and you know, sought to deal with it in an alternative way, which you just can't do for the disease he had. Not, it's not known how to deal with that other than through medical, Western medicine. Um, the uh, but that, I mean, that's pretty much an interesting part of the whole thing is that uh, something in his personality led him to say, well, screw that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to figure out how to deal with this myself. Uh -huh. I don't believe all those doctors have told me. Uh -huh. Maybe it wasn't a matter of belief, maybe it was just a matter of, well, that's what I'm going to do. But that ability to sort of stand separate from the rest of humanity and, and be what look, appears to be irrational, but come up with stuff. 
anyway, so it's a, it's a very hard question to answer. So I have two questions for you, and you can choose which one you want to answer. Um, <clears throat> first one is, what is the connection between money and creativity? And the other one, which is a much more dro- broader general thing, what technology right now, what underestimated technology right now will have the largest impact on, on the planet? Easy. first one's much easier to answer. <laughs> I have a lot of experience with it. Uh-huh. Whereas the second question asks a question where you really don't know actually know what the answer is. Uh-huh. But um, it, at least for all intents and purposes, it looks like there's an inverse relationship between creative and creativity and money. Mm-hmm. That's what I was talking about with constraints. Really comfortable rich people tend not to produce much creative effort mm-hmm. unless they're unusual. Jobs is worth billions, mm-hmm. right? Just to reference that. But And Musk is worth billions. Um, a lot of these people are worth billions. So they... There's some something about entrepreneurial creativity that you know, at least at least to a small set of people, that money doesn't get in the way. And it sounds like in, for those people, their early childhood experiences, which make them uncomfortable for their lifetime, contribute to that. I don't know. That's really hard to say. Like Alan has talked recently about, he grew up in a pretty comfortable environment in South Africa. Well, not psychologically. His dad was was abusive. And... Yeah, or Gates. I mean, Gates had a great family life. Totally honored it. Loved his dad and his mom. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, so that any generalization you make about these people can mm-hmm. be proven wrong. Because and I've tried to... over 40 years to find the pattern <laughs> that, that you can follow. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, but the more comfortable you are, the harder it is to, to be truly creative, to come up with stuff that's not expected um, in any uh, environment. <clears throat> So, um, so, uh, so I believe there is a relationship between creativity and money, which is supply of money, um, and that, that there is a reason that pattern exists, that there are a lot of the sort of famous artists did not have a lot of money mm-hmm. and had to struggle. Um, that's not necessarily true in certain areas of creativity, like movie production, mm-hmm. where it costs a lot of money to, to pursue the, um, the end result, although I think Spielberg's first movie only cost like $70,000 to produce. Mm. Dual, great movie. Mm. Um, or maybe it was more than that. I can't remember the number. But anyway, it's, so you can see people who became very prolific in the movie business but didn't start with a lot of money. Made money as a result of that and, you know, whatever. Um, uh, so I, I think there probably is that relationship. I, I mean, I feel it myself. I, I could challenge myself much more if I didn't have enough money to live comfortably. Um, the uh, and so I believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. Um. So, what is the coolest company that you've invested in recently? Well, now that's like asking me which of my kids I like the most. And <laughs> since I'm talking to one of them, very hard to answer that question. Uh-huh. And uh, to the degree this ever becomes public. Mm. So there's a conundrum in the venture capital business, which is rarely talked about, because all VCs want to present themselves as value-added, that the effort they put into a company actually changes the outcome, and that they're hyper-supportive, and they know a lot and can help a lot, which I believe to be utter bullshit. And... uh, there are instances of venture capitalists that can be helpful, but if your entrepreneur doesn't know how to make the company successful, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> my favorite companies are the ones that require the least amount of work. 
because it means that I have a great management team and you know my money's going to go to work and I'm going to make a lot of money and I don't actually have to put a lot of effort into it. Find the pattern, generally speaking, is that I have to put a lot of effort into companies that are not well run, mm. where I have to supplement or fix a problem, and uh, that's not a lot of fun. Um, I actually happen to enjoy it, which is why I do it, but because uh, I like solving problems. But but it is really more about problem solving than it is about accomplishing. Mm. So, you know, my favorite deal of all time was I I put money into cruise automation very early. Kyle Vote, the founder, was one of the founders of Justin TV, which became Twitch, where we made a lot of money. Mm. Twitch is also one of my favorite deals. I like making a lot of money. But I put zero effort into Cruise. Mm. Um, and the, the, uh, I've talked about it publicly enough that I'm, I, I can say this, but the, Kyle left what was then Twitch to start this company called Cruise Automation. And he went down a path, and it was very cool. And so it gave me a demo ride in an Audi A4 that had been retrofitted with all of the necessary gearing and software to be able to be autonomous. And so I was in the passenger seat and you showed me how the car worked without having his hands on the steering wheel. And I went, look, I don't really understand this and I think it's a terrible business, but can I write you a check? And he said, yeah, I'd love that. So I wrote a check for $100,000 pretty much on the spot. I didn't even ask what the terms were. But it turns out he'd gone through Y Combinator and the terms were... Quite excellent. No, I hadn't gone through White Combinator, so it was quite excellent because after you come out of White Combinator, the terms aren't so excellent. And uh, so I wrote a check for a hundred grand, uh, on a convertible note um, that uh, uh, had a six million dollar valuation cap on it. And then two years later, he sold the company to General Motors for one point three billion dollars. So I personally made five million dollars off that hundred thousand dollar investment. And the math always, you know, it's always obvious if you look at the five people who wrote $100,000 checks into Google, they made way more than I did because Google got so much bigger and on its own as a public company. But, uh, you know, they're estimated to have made like a billion dollars from their $100,000 or maybe $500 million, whatever. Ridiculous amount of money. Well, I like ridiculous amounts of money. And, and, you know, I talked to Kyle a couple of times and uh, it's not like he really needed to solicit my advice or anything or get me to help him. But I enjoyed talking to him. Um, in fact, in the car, he admitted to me that he'd been uh, completely obsessed with robotics since he was 14 years old. And he ended up going to MIT, oh. the core area for robotics development. And the whole Twitch thing was a complete, um, you know, side trip. Oh. Well, that had nothing <laughs> to do with robotics. It had nothing yeah. to do with robotics. Yeah. And uh, they brought him in because he was the hardware guy. Oh. And, uh, did a really good job as the hardware guy, and he ended up running Justin TV's website after Twitch started. And uh, so he produced a lot of value as one of the founders of Twitch and made a boatload of money off of it. Um, and, uh, but he really wanted to do something else, so it's that like, obsessive attention mm -hmm. to, to something that really is important in finding companies, and I just happened to luck into that company. And it's very fascinating to see what GM's doing with Cruise now and what Kyle's continuing to do because he continues to run Cruise as a subsidiary. And, so I'm, that's one of my all-time favorite deals, partially because I just put no effort into it and made a huge amount of money, and uh, partially because Kyle is, turns out to be not such a, a nerd and a true bit. Uh, so um, as a venture capitalist, do you look for deals that, as you just explained, will go from like uh, 10x to 100x what you put the money in, um, and those businesses require a significant 
difference in what the founders do as opposed to if they're just start starting a lifestyle business or a business that kind of like is a general not a huge exponential curve what are the stresses that are associated with uh, building a billion dollar business that aren't associated with other businesses Mm. Um, so the anecdote i tell don't know if i've told you this before but uh, when i became a vc stopped being a journalist i agreed to become a partner at uh, NEA, and uh, I only interviewed with two firms, XL and NEA. Um, XL didn't need a new partner at the time. Which they were still willing to bring me in as a partner, but it felt to me like it would be a, I'd be like an add-on. And uh, NEA needed a partner on the West Coast. Actually, it's pretty funny because they'd already hired two other partners, so they really didn't need a partner on the West Coast. But they thought it would be good to have a former journalist as a partner because I would know about marketing and stuff like that. Um, didn't really want that, so that's a whole different story. But, but, I, but when I agreed, and they agreed to bring me on, I went to John Tour, uh, who I knew pretty well and had always served as a resource for me. And I said to John, it was a little bit like going to Muhammad in the mountain. Um, I said, except it was in his office. Um, and uh, I said to John, I said, so I'm going to join NEA and become a venture capitalist. And he said, no, NEA is a good firm. That's a good choice. And uh, there's a lot of history behind that particular statement, but, um, and, uh, and I said, so John, you've been doing this for a while. I think at that time, maybe 10 or 12 years, but he was already into, uh, hadn't done Google yet. He didn't sun and he hadn't done Amazon yet. He was about to do it like a month later. Um, and, uh, this is 1996 when the internet's just beginning to become visible publicly. And, uh, he said, well, the one thing I've learned is don't worry about valuation. And uh, and so I was like, okay, I had it written on a scroll here. Don't worry about valuation. And I, I go to NEA and every, every Monday morning we'd sit there and argue about valuation. And I had this in the back of my head that John Doerr said, don't worry about valuation. And, and we'd sit there and we'd spend like an hour talking about whether a company was worth 10 or $12 million. And I finally realized, and this is eight years later, I finally realized, pretty much after I completed my tour of duty at NEA. And... Uh, and I look back and I just did pattern recognition. And I went, those companies where we argued about the difference between 10 and $12 million, not a one of them paid off. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ones where we didn't, where we went, oh yeah, let's do this deal. Or, you know, one partner just made us do the deal or whatever. But there was no argument about valuation. It tended to be the ones that made us a lot of money. And so the first conclusion I came to is for, you can't predict what's going to happen with the company. So spending a lot of time arguing about what's going to happen with the company is total bullshit, mm-hmm. particularly in a big group with a lot of different points of view. Because all you're doing is arguing. It's not actually really about predicting the future of the company. And the second thing is what John was saying to me was don't worry about the price you pay. Worry about the mm-hmm. value you get. Mm-hmm. So if you invest $12.5 million into Google, at a hundred million dollar post money value and you own 12 and a half percent of the company when you tell everybody your target is 20 or 25 percent ownership it looks like a pretty good decision six years later when the company's worth a hundred billion dollars um, not to mention however far they wrote it and uh and in fact in that particular deal that was the only deal in kleiner perkins nine that made money and uh, they invested in 30 companies and that portfolio, but KPCB 9 was invested in 1999. 
Mm. <laughs> the fund NEA invested in 1999 made no money. Um, but KPCB did because Google just went whew, flying. Mm. And for whatever the right reasons, whether John knew that was going to happen or, you know, that was the point. It wasn't that it was worth valued at $100 million when it started, but that it was valued at over $100 billion by the time they cashed out. Mm. And that fund was a very successful fund, and all their LPs were very happy and very happy because it wasn't just successful. It was like off the charts, mm. off of one company. Mm. So what about the other 29 companies? Mm. Did they argue about valuation on those companies? You know, so, so you go back and you look at it, and what he was really saying is, Focus on the fundamental value that that company creates. Now, John invested in a bunch of stinkers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nobody remembers them, but, you know, after he's done Amazon and Google and, and uh, Sun Microsystems, and, you know, you can walk your way through all these deals, he's now personally worth more than a billion dollars, maybe several. Mm -hmm. And he made the mistake of actually thinking that meant something. So later in his career, he went off and started doing energy deals and was going to save the world. Mm -hmm. And they all crapped out. Uh, didn't uh, make any money. Interesting. But that's a different story. Yeah. <clears throat> so you just talked about like reality, and when you talk about companies, you just, there's no way to predict the ultimate trajectory of a company, and you deal with a lot of uncertainty in this, and trying to figure out which ones do it. How do you manage this uncertainty, or is it something that you really like to do, or like the, how do you how do you give up your expectations that this one is going to be the one? Uh, when you just you've known through experience that there's there's no way to tell. So it's an excellent question. One we debate constantly in our firm. Um, the uh, and it's my firm belief. This is after 45 years of working both as a journalist, business journalist, and as a venture capital investor. Um, that the key is the founder. And. A lot of venture capitalists go around and they'll talk about things like, well, to be a VC, you have to have operating experience. I actually find operators to be less successful, generally speaking, than financial investors. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and they always say, well, there's three factors that lead to success in a startup. And, you know, one is the team. And they talk about team, right? The whole team, all of them, you know, two or three or four or five or eight, whatever it is, the whole team. And, uh, <clears throat> and they say it has to be in a market that's going to grow really rapidly, right? So you have to have a great team. You have to have differentiated technology. I mean, this is all stuff you hear all the time. Um, and yet, most deals, most VCs do, are marginal or failures, right? So what's the difference between what they're saying and what they're doing? Um, and, uh, and so I've always tried to focus on that. What, it, what is it that leads to a distinct difference in um, in the case of John Doerr, I really think he actually buys the deal that it's the founder, mm. right? So Jeff Bezos, uh, what a yeah. fucking amazing guy. Uh, He's an entrepreneur that I have the highest, <laughs> the living entrepreneur that I have the highest respect for, uh, possibly even the, among the non-living. Uh, um, but anyway, so I can talk about Jeff Bezos quite a lot, but the, um, but John Doerr must have seen something in Bezos and uh, said, well, I'm going to, because he did Five million at a sixty million dollar post money um, in the first round that KP did um, for Amazon. So he bought a relatively small piece of the company, and uh, less than ten percent. Um, and yet the company is now trading with Apple to be the most valuable company in the, in the world. It is right now, but Apple has fallen quite a lot. Um, and uh, 
I think he's still on the board, so he may still have some of those original stock. Mm. Um, and uh, boy, that's a deal where you really didn't have to do anything, although Bezos would make you work like a dog mm. um, as a director and investor. Um, and uh, um, <clears throat> so I also think he has a sense about how things are going to change in the future. So there is a combination of factors that he looks at. Um, but Amazon has no d distinguished technology at the uh -huh. time they started. Uh -huh. I just wanted to be the world's largest bookstore. Uh -huh. The retail concept's not nothing there that you can point to that would be a proprietary advantage. So, uh, so he backed a really outstanding entrepreneur before people knew that um, in a marketplace that had unlimited potential. Mm. Um, so, so I buy that. I think that's a really good thing. So then you have to get, and then how do you find those people? And uh, Boy, we've been surprised so many times when we thought we had one of those entrepreneurs. Um, now, uh, in the case of Emmett Shear at Twitch, who's still running Twitch as part of Amazon, and Twitch, which is worth a lot of multiples over what it was sold to Amazon for, good buy that Amazon made, really outstanding. Um, they've run it since then, it's been great. All those things are good. Uh, but Emmett was a really outstanding entrepreneur, and yet he was the VP of engineering in the original founding team. Barely said a word. Um, and, you know, he was almost invisible to us as yeah. investors. <clears throat> and uh, you know, so how would you have predicted that with four founders and Justin TV that Emmett would be the one to take the company to, to be worth billions of dollars? Um, and uh, you know, most of our experience with entrepreneurs is that they start a company and they do a good enough job that the company t is successful and then they sell it way before it sees its potential. Mm -hmm. And they personally make a lot of money or we make some money. Um, but that's not what you're supposed to be doing as an venture capitalist because you have to return a multiple of the whole fund. Mm -hmm. um, so I would love to figure this out. I mean, I happened in the Kyle boat, you know, um, at Cruise. Uh, he also didn't say a lot at over Twitch. Um, I love Twitch. I mean, I've had multiple positive outcomes out of that, or Justin TV. And uh, <clears throat> so, um, what was the original question? Uh, how do you how do you deal with the certainty? And you said that the founders are the ones. So, so, so you really have to bet on the founders. And so, uh, I'll tell this anecdote, which I've told too much. Um, so, the biggest weakness we have is getting. Uh, attracted by a technology because Gilman's my partner and because he's super competent as I always say he's always right um, he's the geek um, we can we can have very high level of confidence about a particular technology whether it's the right time of the technology or whether it's a big market or all that kind of stuff is still left open but we can really get fall in love with the technology so over the past 12 years We've done a bunch of deals that have gone nowhere. Had great technology with lots of patents, and, but we haven't paid enough attention to who it is. And, um, and like a lot of VCs, we'll replace an entrepreneur uh, who's not good enough. So, so I've developed a thesis that we really have to invest in the entrepreneur, which is actually part of my original thesis, but I didn't pay enough attention to it. And uh, so I'm personally now not investing in a company unless I believe that have one of those entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Still wrong, mm -hmm. um, good potential at the time, but I'm considering that a critical path item. And uh, so I have an awareness every time we make an investment that there's a good chance we'll lose every dollar of the investment. Mm -hmm. And then you say so you make an investment and then you 
decide whether you put more money into the company based on how well you get to know the entrepreneur and whether they have that promise or not. And uh, I have a couple in my portfolio now um, where I think the potential is for multi-billion dollar revenue companies, mm-hmm. whatever the valuation is. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's a lot of fun. I mean, that's, that's really when you, know, you start to, because you get to work with these incredibly smart people mm-hmm. and who are not necessarily perfect people. Mm-hmm. Um, they have their flaws. But where if, the, if you can pull it off, the company that results will have transformational effect on society or industry or whatever, and, and it'll be a successful company and everybody will make a lot of money and everybody will have a lot of fun and be challenged. And that's just really kind of the whole motivation around being a venture investor. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the degree to which I can get, I think I have eight companies in my portfolio right now. Um, had nine, but one got sold. I have another one that's going to go out of business any day now. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the uh, but if you can get a portfolio of six or seven or eight companies where three or four of them promise to be multi-billion dollar outcomes and you're working with really smart entrepreneurs, that's where the confidence to invest comes from. Is to be involved with that greatness, essentially. Mm-hmm. Be, be a famous venture guy. Oh, he's the guy that invested in Twitch or mm-hmm. Cruise or yeah. Meow or <laughs> Niantic is our current one, but that's Gilman's deal. <laughs> Well, that should be it, I think. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. (laughs) Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next hundred years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, When the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day.